For the week of March 28th, 2021, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 535, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And at the Suez Canal, I'm Michael Giltz. Hey, uh, well, try not to get stuck over there so you can uh, come back and do a show. Hey! I'm, I'm not that big. When we're not bringing you the news, we're saving the world shipping industry. You're welcome. <laughs> yes, single-handedly. During the pandemic, we worked out a lot and wound up pushing a, pushing a boat off the Suez Canal. We're doing everything we can for you, our listeners. But what we won't do is give you a show next week, because I'm at the Suez Canal. Sprawling is in LA, but where will you be next week? San Francisco. I will be, uh, you know, the kids have the week off, so they're going to see their grandparents. And guess who's taking them? Y- you are. You call yes. your grandparents the in-laws? The in-laws, yes. Huh. Well, they're not That's my a- grandparents. All right. They're still the, the grandparents of the kids. Yeah. In-laws is, is like, I don't know, the parent. I guess. I guess they are the in-laws. That's fine. Oh, wait, did I say that I- they were going to be at the in-laws? Yeah, you did. Oh. Instead of their gra- instead of their grandparents, you said the in-laws, and I don't know what I pictured, but it wasn't grandparents. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I, I must say, uh, normally we do call them the grandparents. Uh, so a couple of, uh, for the past couple of weeks- I have noticed you've been correcting me on something I've said, oh. Uh, like, oh, no, don't you mean X instead of Y? And I'm like, oh, well, I said X. But then when I go back to edit the show, I'm like, oh, my God, I totally said Y. He was right. <laughs> so <laughs> It may have to do with something you not having any sleep last night. <laughs> exactly. But uh, so this is another one of those moments where I must have said in-laws, but what I meant was grandparents. Well, that's cool. So we won't have a show next week, but we will bring you a show this week. What are we going to talk about? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, in honor of the ship Ever Given, which, by the way, in English means evergreen, okay? You know, so an evergreen is always there, right? Because it's evergreen, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So uh, we're going to try and light your load. Get it? Because it's a ship with a cargo. And then, oh, okay. Well, uh, we have all the news you need, but quicker. We're going to be quick. Well, maybe. Award season is heating up, and the Producers Guild just weighed in with its winners, and Michael will give an update on his favorite films as well. Also, after decades off the air, Woody Allen pops up on the air, and after decades on the air, Sharon Osbourne is popping off, literally and figuratively. The Me Too era strikes again. Now, is that really Me Too? Well, we'll talk about it when we get there. On Inside Baseball, we'll take a closer look at music. Sales are up. They're up worldwide despite the pandemic, but the major labels know sales could be much bigger. That's why they're striking deals to gain better access to China. Is that inside baseball? I I saw that in Big Deal, Big Whoop, not, not inside baseball. It's inside baseball now. Okay, just wondering. You see, we do try and plan for these shows, people. In fact, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we're going to discuss some of the week's top headlines. That's how much we plan. We we look up the top headlines, and then we decide whether we should be or shouldn't be reading them to you. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz. He's going to fill us in on last week's box office. How did you like the way I totally screwed up that intro, Michael? Can you tell Sperling woke up at 2 in the morning and couldn't get back to sleep? <laughs> A <laughs> little less wine next time before the <laughs> night before a show, Sperling. A little less wine, a little less vino. Anyway, we're looking at the worldwide box office for the week ending March 28th. Our information is all over the map again. I still didn't find a roundup for worldwide box office. All anyone spoke about was Godzilla versus Kong. Everything else was just ignored. Uh, it's, it's a mess. 
If you've got any information on any of these movies, you know, let us know, but we'll get to that in a minute. But we are looking at the box office around the world, and the number one film is Godzilla vs. Kong. It opened worldwide to $122 million. A lot of that was in China, but it also opened up in a bunch of other countries, too, even though, is it just North America where it's coming to HBO Max? Godzilla vs. Kong? Yeah. Oh, wait. Wait. No, I believe so, yes. I believe in other yeah. countries it's, it's going just to theaters. All right, because HBO Max is available in other countries, I assume. Yes, but not it's not as widely available. So, mm. you know, that's why it's opening up early. Mm-hmm. And why do you think it's opening up early, Michael? Why Piracy, think- piracy, piracy. Correct. That's right. So Godzilla vs. Kong opened up. It's big. It's dumb. It's loud. It's the sort of film you'll enjoy more in a movie theater, if you want to see it at all, than you would at home. But people will watch it at home, too. I you know, here I am in North America. Do I want to pay money to see it? If it got great reviews, I might have. But since I'm going to have it for free on HBO Max, that's a heavy lift to ask me to go to the theater, risk my life, and spend $15. <laughs> At number two around the world is Disney's Raya and the Last Dragon. This film has gotten very good reviews and good buzz. It made $19 million this week. It's approaching $100 million worldwide. That probably would have been at least seven or $800 million if it had been traditionally released. And number three is a real surprise. It's a thriller, Nobody, starring Bob Odenkirk. Hey, you better call Bob. Uh, It made $12 million. Did quite well at the North American box office. You can see theaters are starting to open back up again. Maybe too soon, but they're doing it, and they're making money. So L.A. helped, other cities helped, and more grosses around the world. It made $6 million in North America, I believe, and or six or seven, and the rest of it in other countries. So Bob Odenkirk, movie star. A, a couple things here. Uh, one, only 52% of the movie theaters in the United States are open. And mm-hmm. of those, uh, of course, in Los Angeles and New York, you have 25% max capacity limits. Um, so if, for those people still wondering why these studios were waiting for New York and LA to open up before- no, nobody's, nobody's wondering. Not well, a single right, soul but, is wondering. Nobody's wondering. <laughs> well, nobody's wondering why they don't want to release a $200 million. All I'm wondering is why they didn't wait to release a $200 million movie for the fall or next year. Why throw it on your streaming service? That's a massive, expensive bet <laughs> on a streaming service. You can find out how excited people are by streaming without spending $200 million a movie to do it. Well, so, a couple things. One- uh, LA and New York at 25% capacity were the top two markets for nobody. Now, maybe mm-hmm. and so that and top two markets in the nation this week. Well, they're the top two markets overall, aren't right. they? Exactly. And everybody else is at 25% or 50% at best as well. And they're much smaller cities or areas. So it's uh, not, not unusual. The biggest markets opened up and they're the biggest markets. Yes. No okay. surprise. Well, and you want to know why certain movies are going to to streaming. So if you look at Marvel specifically, let's just look at that. The the Black Widow is now going to go straight to streaming. With a $30 mm-hmm. surcharge, it has to do more with two things. One, they're trying to drive subs- subscriptions. Save it for inside baseball. Oh, okay. You want to talk about that? Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, no. it's, it's We got it right. Oh, okay. You're right. We can talk about it now. Where did I put that? I don't know. You know, here's the thing. I did actually read the show notes, but then Michael, while I was doing the intro, decided to move everything around. Now I don't <laughs> well, know where Well, we're trying to figure everything out. No, inside baseball is where we talk about windowing. 
Oh, okay. Well, then, if that's the case, we, I, I didn't update it. It's not music. It's inside baseball. My God, this show's a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> Headline. Did I wake up at two in the morning with a wine with a wine <laughs> insomnia? Lord Almighty! Yes, inside baseball is where we talk about windowing. I put not, the music, music back. In, I put music back into inside into Big Deal Big Whoop because we had nothing. So I peppered that with the music. And inside baseball, we'll do a little talk about windowing. So we'll get to that soon. Okay. The number so one movie around the world tuned. is Godzilla versus Kong for 122 million. Ray and the Last Dragon made 19 million. Nobody opened up at 12 million worldwide. Big success story for Bob Odenkirk, I have to say. Tom and Jerry, the reboot of the live action animated hybrid, that made $8 million. That's at $85 million worldwide. Hi, Mom, the Chinese comedy, comic drama that. Needs to be remade by Hollywood. Toot sweet. That movie made $7 million. I think it's at about $820 million worldwide. Avatar, still making money. $7 million. $2,841,000,000. Five or 10 years from now, they'll re-release it again and hit $3 billion. I just know it. Detective Chinatown 3 made another $3 million. Chaos Walking is slowing down. That made $2 million. Minari, mostly in Korea, I believe, but also in other countries, I think it made about $2 million last week. It's hitting $8 million worldwide, and about $8 of that came from me because I saw it last night at AMC Theaters. There was one other guy in the cinema here in Birmingham, Alabama. I liked it very much. One of the best films of the year. Now, one movie is missing on this chart. It's Shin Evangelion uh, Geki Jobang. I'm butchering that name, but it's an anime film from Japan. The finale to a manga and a TV series and all this stuff. If you haven't been following it, you're going to feel like you came in at the end of a TV show and like, what's happening? But it made good money on its opening week in Japan. I think it fell hard and fast. Last week, it only made $4 million. It's at $34 million total. So we're not talking spirited away territory, that's for sure. But I don't know what it made this week. If you do, tell us. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call us and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter. We're at showbizsandbox is our handle. And uh, you know what? You can like us on Facebook. Facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where you can find our page. Well, let's get this show back on track, Sperling. It's award season time. What happened at the PGAs last night? They handed out their trophies. Uh, well, again, uh, they neglected to call either your name or my name. Uh, also, we didn't produce a movie, so that probably kind of goes Accounts handed. for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Nomadland won Best Picture, surprising absolutely nobody. <clears throat> uh, and last year, I guess, 1917 won the PGA and the DJ, but then lost Best Picture to Parasite. Yeah, so uh, don't assume anything's in the bag. People are like, well, it's a lock. Well, no. <laughs> Remember last year? I mean, you could go back decades and always find exceptions, but dear God, it just happened last year. So it's not a lock. <laughs> yeah, you know? well, especially Ch- now. Chadwick to- Boseman is not a lock. Nothing is a lock, well, usually. Well, with Best Picture, you got that preferential balloting, and so that's a, that's really throws everything up in the, up in the air. That's right. So the Producer Guild, you want to think about their biases, things that are especially challenging or difficult to do or unique challenges. In this case, Nomadland, you know, there was a lot of non-actors in this film. You look at the credits and they're playing themselves, telling their stories, finding those people, casting them, getting them comfortable on camera 
interacting with a movie star. Frances McDormand is a really down-to-earth movie star, but nonetheless, they've seen her on TV and movies all their lives. So that is challenging. Plus, they made it on a dime. They took an, a nonfiction book with no narrative to speak of and crafted a film out of it. The challenges for this film were immense. And I think that's one reason why they gravitated to it. It makes sense to me. Well, what about uh, the next film uh, the, for the best documentary? You want to talk about immense challenges. This guy couldn't even breathe oxygen when he was making his movie. Okay, <laughs> That's right. My octopus <laughs> teacher, he was underwater. That's, that's, that's right. It's you know, children and animals. They say, don't work with children and animals. They never said anything about fish. And I know somebody's going to write in and tell me that like an octopus is a cephalopod or some something. But, you know, go with the jokes, people. He's smarter than our, your dog. Let's just put it that way. And and Soul, one of the best animated film. The only other movie I saw in the uh, animated category so far was Wolf Walkers, which has a gorgeous look to it. And is a good reminder that not all animated films have to follow the storylines of, you know, Pixar has been very innovative, but the look of it, animated films can be much broader than what we've had. I also watched um, Weathering With You, the Japanese animated film, which is contemporary and involves you know, like kids, runaways in Japan, in Tokyo, who are, some are almost lured into sex work. I mean, you're just like, this, you know, animated films can do anything. The the family-friendly, narrow, you know, line that they're in right now, it doesn't need to be that narrow. Wolf Walkers is a great example of a terrific visual look that isn't the classic Pixar Disney look. And Weathering With You is a great example of storylines. It's family-friendly, basically, slightly older kids, maybe not your eight-year-olds, but it is certainly not anything like what we see uh, coming out of our animated world. So a good reminder of there's a much bigger, broader world out there. I've been watching a lot of movies because I'm getting ready for the IRAs, my annual group where we get together and vote. That happens on April 16th. I've been watching movies day and night, which is great. It's easier to do than ever. That's why I went to Minari last night in the theater because I couldn't really cheaply and easily see it at home. There was only one other guy in the theater. It was safe. But Nomadland is great. Minari is great. If either of those wins Best Picture, that'll be a good year. That's really you know a year with Hollywood picking a very good movie yet again to be Best Picture. Now, what about some of these other movies that you, you have listed here? Uh, well, well, you know, sorry, we missed you. That that was uh, I feel like that was can 2019. That's right. It, it opened up in New York City in January of 2020. It's a Ken Loach film, a great director. And I think this is one of his best. I remember seeing the wind that shakes the barley at Cannes. Uh, and that was a great revelation for me. Sorry, we missed you. Just like Nomadland really tackles the gig economy and inequality. It's just heartbreaking, but it's really well done. Yeah. But, you know, Beanpole is the Russian film you saw at Khan. Love uh, that Fire movie. Yeah, Fireball is the Herzog film that's playing on Apple Plus. And there's some really, you know, great stuff that's, that's you know, documentaries. What a great year for docs. Dick Johnson is dead. I thought that was terrific. Uh, I really liked Collective. I really liked the Frederick Weissman film City Hall. I really liked uh, Boy State. That was also solid. Um, some favorite directors came back. Uh, Xavier Dolan had one or two stumbles, but his newest film, Matthias and Maxime, very, very strong. 
right back on track. Very happy to see that. And I don't know if you ever watched The O.C. Did you watch that TV show? I'm sure you didn't. You weren't a 12-year-old girl. Uh, no, I did not. No. Watch. I mean, I knew I, it existed, and I was like, oh, I know where the – yeah, no, I didn't watch it. I quite liked it, but the star was Adam Brody along with uh, Benjamin McKenzie. And Adam Brody's a, a very appealing actor. I like him a lot. And he's made this sort of noirish film called The Kid Detective about a kid. It's kind of like, you know, Encyclopedia Brown, those children's books. Yeah. It's like Encyclopedia Brown grew up, can't stop wanting to be a detective, and no one thinks it's cute anymore. <laughs> but it's a classic <laughs> sort of hard-boiled noir with this guy who was, you know, lauded as a kid because he found your puppy or figured out who stole the lunch money. And now they're like, mm, you know, dude, <laughs> it's very, very good. Mm satirizes and tweaks and has fun with the classic noir genre. So if you love hardboiled detectives and stuff, completely ignored, but well worth a fun, entertaining movie. And the same goes for The Vast of Night, a very low-budget sci-fi flick playing on Amazon. This is a really good movie, a really promising debut by these people, but very satisfying and fun on its own about maybe, maybe aliens are coming to visit. You know, it's a very clever, done on a dime, really worth checking out. So a lot of good stuff, and I'm looking that, forward that's to That's one of those more. movies that struck me that if it was released theatrically, it would wind up being like one of those sleeper hits that people talked about. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah no, it, it, it is a sleeper hit. It may be streaming, but I'm recommending it to people, and I'm certain we will see more from the talent that was behind it. You know, uh, a couple things. One, uh, you mentioned two films that some say are the best movies of the year whether they're documentaries or narrative films. And that is Dick Johnson is dead and collective collective is absolutely phenomenal. Mm -hmm. I mean, just, it, I mean, it had me on the edge and I thought this can't possibly be not entertaining, but engaging, but it is about a, uh, it's about it, a, a, a health scandal in the Romanian country. The healthcare system is completely corrupt, yeah. but the entire government is corrupt at the core. I hate to be that harsh, but it really is just steeped in corruption and bribery, and it's falling apart. And a horrible fire at a nightclub you know, brings awake to people what a disaster their healthcare system is and the government, how corrupt it is. And Journalists who end up investigating and breaking story after story are from a sports newspaper. It's called Sports Gazette. And I thought at first, am I just not understanding the sport means something different in Romania? But no, they're like, they're covering football on the side and they're breaking healthcare scandals. I mean, it's crazy. It's yeah. just, but the movie is heartbreaking. It's really, really powerful. It's, oh, they get the, the journalists, they get new government officials are trying to do good. They get families who've been affected by these tragedies and they weave it all together in a really powerful way. Really. Especially well the health minister. Like they get this new health oh, minister yeah. and he's like, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. And he's like really young and he was really, he's going to try. And, and in the end, of course he, you know, well, I'll let you watch the movie boy state too. You want to know how we wound up in, in, in today, today in the United States being, you know, so divided watch boy state and you will, You'll cry because I, dis I disagree. I, I found Boy State inspiring. Why did you find it depressing? Uh, I guess it's filled with a bunch of jerks. These kids who are in high school and they're behaving like, you know, Ted Cruz. Yes. You know, and, right. And, they're just complete schmucks. You want to slap them. <laughs> and you realize that that the, that whole the concept. Right. The concept of I don't care what the position is or what the platform is. I just have to win. Right. And, and they're 17 and they're already cynical. Yeah. They're like, wait, wait, 
we're, we're so for is, or against abortion. A, I'll take either side. It doesn't matter to me as long as we win. It's like this is a movie uh, set in Texas. There are boy states, sort of mock UN type things, but in this case, they do a little state government, and you run for governor or other state positions. They do them all over the country. The American Legion pick people. The one we focus on is in Texas. Remember that, because if you did a boy state documentary about kids in Vermont or California or some other progressive state, you'd have a very different mix of kids. So you got. These kids in Texas, a state where you know the long history and where a lot of their parents are coming from, that's been typically read. But what you have is you've got these jerks, of course, and kids who think it's all a game, but you've also got a really inspiring story and some great kids who really take it seriously and want to do better. And want. And I, I walked away from this thinking, you know what? If these kids almost won power in Texas, you know, as kids, knowing where they started from and how self-selective it is to say what kids are really into politics and can afford to spend two weeks going away and doing this thing. You know, that's a really, you know, you're going to get the more privileged, wealthy kids overall doing this and plugged into the American Legion. So the fact that you got kids of color, kids who are probably queer, though they, they're not talking about that, and, and kids who are physically challenged, all taking part in this, and some really progressive kids doing really, really well and really inspiring and giving great speeches. I, I saw that and thought, you know what? Texas is about to twist. Texas is about to go over. So I, I found it really great. I think you'd have had a better perspective on the future if you saw more kids from more states. You wouldn't think, oh my God, these kids are such jerks. You'd think, hey, look at the great kids and how close they came to seizing power in Texas. So, yeah, well, you know, and context, I know what you're saying. I found yeah. it really beautiful. I found it really hopeful. Yeah, well, and the person who, I, I, since you've kind of uh, mentioned it, the person who they, they basically elect two potential governors, one on the left and one on the right, and uh, the the person you're referring to, I thought was inspiring. Yeah, yeah, he's great, and he's not. They're not the left or the right. He just happened to win one of the two parties, uh, you know, thing. So it's not like the one group was supposed to be. They could have both been right wing. Yeah, you that's know, true. But the fact that he won the votes and really kicked ass. You got this big, lumpy kid who seems kind of quiet. I'm going to give away one of the movie's twists. It's a documentary. You got this lumpy kid who seems kind of quiet, and he says, I want to be governor. And you're like, dude. you know, like, And you see these other guys who are hustling and, and, and glad-handing and doing all this stuff. And you're like, oh, God, this kid is not going to get anywhere. But they get a chance to give speeches, and he gets enough signatures to give a speech. And you wait, and this other kid gives a speech, and he's just, oh, he's such a schmuck. And then this kid, I, I, you know, he's a real person, so I'm sorry, he's 17, but he was a bit of a schmuck. And then this kid gets up and gives this great, inspiring speech. And you're like, oh, my God. Like, that yeah. was amazing. And, he, you know, he went, you're like, oh, my God. That was, yeah. I did not see that coming at all. It was like, da-da-da, suddenly he's Superman. Gave a great speech. And you're like, and, that, and then it went on from there. That's just early on in the movie. But it's fun. It's a fun movie. Now, did you but get a to lot see, of good movies? So, did you, you know, get to I've see the painter and the thief? I did. I liked it. I didn't love it. I thought it was solid. I thought it was interesting. I had to look up what was going on because I was a little confused. But it's a documentary about a, an artist who creates two of her best works. They get stolen. The thief is caught. One of the thieves is caught, and she befriends him and decides to start painting him. And they develop a friendship. And it was interesting and strong. I, I liked it quite a bit. It's not on my best of the year list, but I, I certainly enjoyed it. It's well worth seeing. Well, uh, is the interview with Woody Allen worth seeing? Because I guess well, CBS yeah. CBS did an interview with him, uh, and I couldn't fit. You know, when I saw all the the notifications coming through about this, I thought, is this an old interview or a new interview? And why is he doing an interview now? 
Uh, what's well, going it's, on it's, with this guy? it's an old interview when his book, when his memoir was about to be published, CBS Sunday morning, got him and for his first TV interview in 30 years, they interviewed him about his memoir. And of course they raised the issues of the child sex abuse scandal, uh, the, the, the allegations of raping his, ch- his, uh, child Dylan Farrow. However, then that exploded up. The book was dropped by the publisher, got picked up by a smaller one social justice, you know, protests were breaking out all over the country. They knew they had a hot potato and weren't quite sure how to handle it. Uh, just simply talking to Woody Allen and addressing those issues suddenly became a lot more complicated. And they sat on it for a year. Finally, yeah. they figured out what to do. They said, all right, we're going to show the interview. We're also going to do a major story about giving platforms to people and how that legitimizes them. That's the one that aired on CBS Sunday morning. Then they tease the Woody Allen view, which you have to go to Paramount Plus to get. And they also package it with a, an interview with Ronan Farrow. So it's a multi-part package. It gives, it gives that interview space, but it also puts it in context. I think they did the right thing. I'm surprised they put it on Paramount. Yeah, and they put it on Paramount Plus G. And if you really want to watch it, you have to go and subscribe. So well, they want they're a business. They want to make money. It's true. Yeah. I guess uh, somebody's learned something from the uh, Oprah Winfrey, Meghan Markle, Harry interview. Yes, I think we knew that already. But yeah, but now here's something that's interesting. You said that the Sharon Osbourne. Now Sharon Osbourne is Ozzy Osbourne's. Wife, for those of you who don't know, and uh, she has, you know, was part of his his reality show, and then was a host of the talk, right? So, and was from there from the very beginning, but then uh, she fell well, into. I guess she said some some uh, incendiary no, things. No, no, but, not really. But what here's happened my question: was, You said it's me too. I don't know how this is me too. Well, the Me Too era is about treating other people with respect, whatever their gender. Me Too is not simply about I was raped. It's also about I was sexually harassed, I was mistreated, and you feel you were mistreated because you're a woman or a person of color or whatever it might be. It's an era of simply people speaking up and saying, hey, I shouldn't be treated this way. Perhaps that's using it more broadly than you would think. It initially began as saying, hey, I was sexually assaulted as well. But it's also just about sexual harassment and mistreatment at work. And Sharon Osbourne was defending Piers Morgan, who in this era of insensitivity, people were like, he was mocking the idea that Meghan Markle was feeling suicidal. He did that on a, on a British morning talk show. People said, you really shouldn't do that. And he's like, oh, you're a bunch of babies. I never liked her. And he quit the show. Sharon Osbourne was on her show uh, and asked to defend him. And other, other people on the show were saying, well, he's really racist. He's like, why was he racist? Tell me how he's racist. Don't cry. How dare you cry? I'm the one who should be crying. I'm being ganged up on. That happened on the air. It was very uncomfortable. Then they paused and the show went on hiatus. And she said, I'm not racist. I don't have a racist bone in my body, which is a thing you really shouldn't say because it ends up, you know, it never works out well. If you feel the need to say, I don't have a racist bone in my body, you're probably in trouble. And she, but what she said on the air was not so untenable. But what happened was other women who used to be on the show with her said, yeah, I remember the time she made a racist comment to me and I felt like I was fired because of her. And then other women spoke up and then other employees spoke up. And it turns out behind the scenes, she has been credibly uh, described as making multiple racial and insensitive comments, anti-gay, anti-people of color, anti-Asian, anti-Italian even, and just has a history of abusive relationships to other people at the talk a show that she has hosted since its beginning 11 years ago. And they're like, you know what, maybe we should part ways. So this is just about 
you know, <laughs> people learning that you should treat other people with respect. And if you don't, someday it may come back to bite you in the ass. Now, here's the thing, Michael. You know how this show is kind of a mess? Yeah. So uh, right outside the studio here, we have uh, the gardeners and the landscaping I, crew. I, I uh, can't hear them. You can't hear them? Okay. No, no, but we, uh, you know, you can always turn up your streaming service if you like. Uh, there's a lot of, of stuff going on in streaming, and we've got a combined chart courtesy of me. I take the charts from Nielsen for the top original shows on streaming this week, the top uh, acquired shows and the top movies, and I combine them all together into one big chart for the top 10. But you can all scroll down and see each individual breakdown. There's good info. We don't really have great numbers, but we do have to take some of this, you know, we do have to sometimes take studios at their word. Should we listen to them? Disney Plus says The Falcon and the Winter Soldier already ranks as its biggest premiere episode ever. Bigger than The Mandalorian. Bigger than WandaVision. We're like, really? How big? And they're like, trust us. So as we, as we look at that, we say, all right, we don't want to take them at their word. So when we do get solid information from a third-party company like Nielsen, that's when we say, okay, we've got uh, information from Nielsen. We trust that they're doing the best job that they can. The info would be better if the streaming services would cooperate, but that's on them, not on Nielsen. So according to Nielsen, the most popular property on streaming services last week was Ginny and Georgia on Netflix, which was viewed over 950 trillion minutes worth. Ginny and Georgia is sort of a comedy drama akin to Gilmore Girls about a mother and daughter's relationship. It's an original series on Netflix. And in fact, when you look at my top 10, Everything is from Netflix except for WandaVision, which is at number six. Uh, also on the charts is I Care A Lot. That's at number three. That's an original movie, the highest uh, ranked original movie on the charts. That stars Rosamund Pike and Peter Dinklage in a comic drama about a crooked legal guardian, a person who is put in charge of elderly people then takes advantage of them. Nice. <laughs> had you seen that film, Sperling? No, I had not. No, you have not. So that's what we have on the charts. I do think it's a big whoop when somebody like Disney Plus says, hey, Falcon and Winter Soldier is really popular. Trust us. Who cares what they say? Same thing when Netflix tries to tout their bull metrics. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to curse. Their BS metrics. So uh, when we get solid information from someone like Nielsen, that's a big deal. Well, if that's a big deal, I wonder what you think of some of our stories in this week's Big Deal or Big Whoop. Big Deal or Big Whoop is our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story is about Warner Music, which is big in Japan. You get it? Big in Japan? It's mm -hmm. like a Tom yeah, Wick song. Yeah, yeah. Big in Japan? Yeah. Uh, but they want to be big in China, too. Okay, so to achieve that goal, they are partnering with the country's Tencent to crack the Great Wall and make artists like Dua Lipa and Ed Sheeran just as big in Macau as they are in Miami. See, those are M words, Macau, mm -hmm. Miami. Okay. <laughs> uh, Sony and Universal have also cut similar deals with Tencent, giving them a shot at not one, not two, but all three of the country's biggest music streaming services. They're all owned by Tencent. So, there you go. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big whoop, I guess. Of course, they're going to do that. They have no choice. And while China is the number one market in the world for movies, thanks to the pandemic, though they will be soon enough on their own, they're not even close when it comes to uh, paying for music. 
China contributes just 3% of the worldwide $21 billion revenue for record labels. Uh, they contribute literally about $600 million of that $20 billion or less than the box office of Hi Mom. <laughs> so th that's not a lot of money given the size of the country. And in fact, worldwide recorded music revenue grew in 2020, hitting $23.1 billion, an increase over 2019 of $1.5 billion, despite a horrible, terrible, no good, very bad first half of the year, thanks to the pandemic. In the second half, they really caught on fire. So the big problem here is not that music labels want to break into China, is that the problem we have with big conglomerates owning too much market share is really bad in China, where Tencent owns all three of the big streaming services. That's like one company owning Spotify, Pandora, and iHeartMedia, and Apple, and Amazon. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. It's crazy. But, you know, what can you do? Well, a couple things. Uh, one, uh, you know, it, you, here's the thing. It's China. So, of course, there's going to be only one owner uh, to these three large companies. And if you uh, get too large, uh, the government comes in and takes over. Just ask Jack Ma. They, uh, they're taking over everything. So, you know. Yeah. Well, speaking of things that uh, are getting interesting, this is really getting interesting. The United Kingdom just released a broad study of the nation's broadcast industry. Now, they say the license fee that funds the BBC is outdated and it needs an overhaul. I guess if someone gets their TV over the top, what do they need a TV license for? But if they don't pay, and that is the citizens, if they don't pay, will they get a criminal record? I mean, it's possible. It's possible. Yeah. And if the license fee is killed, how will the government fund the BBC? Uh, um, taxes? Yeah, taxes. <laughs> anyway, uh, the really interesting part is when this government study says the UK entertainment industry is being cheated out of info that it needs. Now, stay with us here. We may have said this a time or two. If the BBC or ITV or somebody creates a show and that show is shown on Amazon or Netflix or wherever, they have a right to know how many people are watching it. How can they value the show or negotiate new contracts if they are denied the most basic information about how popular it is? Good question. And an even more important question. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? <laughs> well, it'll be a big deal if the UK government forces Netflix and Amazon to provide that info and we all get our eyes on it. <laughs> Until then, it's just a big whoop. As far as the license fee, everyone who has a TV gets a, pays a TV license fee of whatever pounds per year. That is probably not the way it should go anymore since people can now just watch TV on their laptop or a computer screen or whatever that isn't really technically a TV anymore because they're getting it over the top. So they just need to tax people another way to make sure that that really valuable service and institution of the BBC continues to be funded. Now, Michael, I know this it's, it's one of your favorite days of the year. The Library of Congress added 25 new recordings to the National Registry as works of historic interest. They range from a recording on tinfoil by Thomas Edison way back in 1878, which, you know, unfortunately, I used to uh, wrap my leftovers in. So, <laughs> so, so oh, whoopsie. <laughs> yeah, just kidding. Uh, to an episode of This American Life in 2008 about the subprime mortgage debacle. Among the pieces are Kermit the Frog singing The Rainbow Connection to Phil Rizzuto doing play by play for Roger Maris's 61st home run as well as Lady Marmalade performing, get this, 
Lady Marmalade. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. LaBelle, LaBelle, LaBelle. <laughs> oh, what? You know, LaBelle, the trio LaBelle. They uh, sing Lady Marmalade. Oh, okay. Look, I'm just, I just read the stuff, folks. I don't. Uh, you know, Patty LaBelle and, and yeah. Nona Hendrix, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. Well, Michael, you're going to tell us how they included the wrong recording of Strauss's four last songs. And, you know, I'm going to tell you how to pronounce the name of the Hawaiian singer whose medley of Somewhere Over the Rainbow and What a Wonderful World became such a viral hit. So how do you say, Michael, Israel Kamaka Vivo Ole? Ah, well done. Anyway, a uh, big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's, it's a big whoop, of course, but it's a lot of fun, especially now because you can go to links and hear everything. The most obscure stuff from the late 1800s, the mid-century today, it's all available to check out right now. That makes it really exciting to me. I do think I would have chosen Elizabeth Schwartzkopf's four last songs over uh, Jesse Norman's, but that's a great recording too. Jackson Brown, they chose Late for the Sky as the one Jackson Brown album they wanted to you know, memorialized. I would have thought the pretender or for me running on empty, but my good friend, Lisa Metcalf, high school and college, she is the hardcore Jackson Brown fan. She says, no, no, no. Laid for the sky. Absolutely. So I'll go to her, uh, you know, I'll bow to her judgment. An episode of the guiding light from 1945. That's very cool. It's the longest running soap opera in history via radio and TV from 1937 to 2009. I wonder if the Archers in the UK has run longer. Uh, General Hospital will need to run to 2035 to tie it. It's probably just the longest running in North America. The Grand Ole Opry has run longer and is still going strong. That started in 1925. But Adetta, Ballads and Blues, Janet Jackson, Rhythm Nation, Naz's Ilmatic, The Harder They Come soundtrack, Stuff I've Never Heard Of, that's the most exciting. You can follow all those links. And it's really cool. Check them out. You know, on National Public Radio, uh, I think it was All Songs Considered. All Songs? Sorry. All Things Considered. All Songs Considered is also a very good podcast, by the way. Yeah. Uh, but uh, they interviewed Jackson Brown and were asking him, late for the sky, like what, why? And he, he said, look, I, I guess it is one of my most popular albums. Uh, and I think it is, he did say it is the one that has sold the most. So, uh, you know. And the one that he plays time and time again at concerts, so and is the most requested song. So he he understood why they picked that particular album. Well, it's not. I mean, it's it's certainly acclaimed. It's not like it's a bizarre choice. It's not even close to his best selling album, though. Running on Empty sold seven million copies, oh, okay. whereas uh, Late for the Sky only went platinum. So, and The Pretender sold three million copies. Holdout sold two million copies. So there's. That's not the reason. It's because it's acclaimed and it's considered one of his best or his most Jackson Brownian. Okay. Well, the game show Jeopardy is one I cannot win. No, is uh, it's getting a lot of mileage out of announcing guest hosts and ratings are holding steady. So expect the question of who will replace Alex Trebek to last longer than a season of The Bachelor. Ken Jennings was the bland first guest host, and then the show's producer, Mike Richards, stepped in for, well, for COVID scheduling reasons. Uh, he was followed by newscaster Katie Couric, and then Dr. Oz. That's what? right. Yeah, what? the snake oil, yeah, the snake oil salesman has kind of sullied his actual medical credentials with a parade of specious and dangerous claims on his talk show. Plus, he was terrible uniting fans and former contestants who objected to even the idea of someone like Oz being associated with a show known for celebrating these things that we commonly refer to as facts. Not alternative facts, just facts. Not to fear, upcoming hosts will include everyone from Anderson Cooper 
to Mayim Bialik to footballer Aaron Rodgers, who I'm sure will be like, wait, how did I get my agent on the phone? Why am I doing this? It should have been Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, except he's too tall, probably. Yes, that is probably (laughs) true, actually. Uh, Big dealer, big whoop. Ah, it's a big whoop, right? It's a big whoop that they have all these guest hosts. Dr. Oz is a really bad fumble. I mean, this guy has touted on his show cures. You can hear the air quotes, I hope. Cures for autism. He has championed gay reparative therapy, which all all medical professionals have denounced as dangerous and wrong. He's promoted quack medicine, snake oil, hydroxychloroquine when there was no scientific evidence to back it up. And now we know it's dangerous and bad. Uh, Just a crazy, crazy choice. It's like having Geraldo on, on Jeopardy. It's just a nutty, ridiculous, bad thing for them to do. But I have to say, Mike Richards, the producer, he's hosted other game shows. I don't know how he became a producer on this one. He hosted Pyramid and some other game show once. And it shows, man, he was very good. He's probably my favorite so far. Now, here's the question. I mean, yes, Dr. I Oz, want to he, give us the answer and then we'll give you the question. Well, I don't, yeah, uh, you know, good, good, uh, <laughs> good one. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, Dr. Oz, he started off and he actually was helpful. He was, you know, Oprah Winfrey kind of found him. And then he went off the rails. I mean, he went so far off the rails that I don't know how it didn't kind of sully Oprah's reputation. Well, she made a lot of money off of him, but she likes new age stuff. She likes that crap. He, he didn't go off the rails. He was bad from the start. He was just a touchy feely guy who traded on credentials to promote whatever seemed popular and easy to sell, you know, feel good or feel bad stuff. So you, I, I don't like him from the start. He's not a good guy. Dr. Sanjay Gupta has had a bad series of runs on CNN promoting alternative medicine and shit that just is not based in science. And he gives it a platform on CNN and acts like acupuncture and all this crap and herbal medicine and all these things that have no scientific backing to them and promotes them as, well, you know, maybe it works. It's like, no, that's not how science works. Either it works or it doesn't. <laughs> and so he lost out on a position in the Obama administration because the scientific community, when Obama was going to promote him for uh, for a surgeon general, were like, what are you talking about? Sanjay Gupta, are you crazy? And he, he withdrew his nomination. And since then, he has worked to rehabilitate his image and tried to be a little more uh, aware of like, yeah, just because you're on CNN and you got an hour to fill doesn't mean you should be promoting you know herbal medicine unless it has actual scientific backing to it. So he's worked hard to, to rehabilitate his image. Dr. Oz never has because he's making money hand over fist and he just doesn't care. Yeah. And because, you know, Dr. Sanjay Gupta is an actual working doctor, not just so somebody. Also, well, Doc Oz is an actual doctor, too. So. Y- yeah, I don't think he's seeing patients. But well, I mean, he's making too much money, but he had credentials just like Gupta. But that, that doesn't just because you're a doctor and can treat a patient doesn't mean you know a damn thing about judging the efficacy of medicine or judging the efficacy of a, a treatment, a new treatment or a new thing, or have any expertise in your outside your particular area. Just because you're an expert in heart surgery doesn't mean you know a damn thing about, you know, back pain. You yeah, know? I think, uh, I think over the past it. year, I think Gupta has really uh, done a good job of uh, at least explaining what some of the scientists are saying. I mean, he's not necessarily saying, I believe that he's saying, you know, this is what they mean by efficacy. This is what they mean by you know, viral transmission. Uh, and I think that may have helped him. Right. But Oprah's not responding. You know, Oprah's made a lot of money off the Doc Oz show and other people, but you know, she's, she's not running around looking to promote any bad people, but that's one I wish she wasn't associated with, but you know, she loves that new age stuff. Now the book business, and I'm sure 
Gupta, actually, Dr. Sanjay Gupta did write a book, in fact, and I'm sure Dr. Oz has, but uh, the book business just got smaller. Penguin, Random House, snapped up Simon & Schuster. Since HarperCollins lost out on that deal, it uh, acquired the trade publishing arm of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, and if that sounds like a lot of names, it's because they were all different companies until they decided to all buy each other. Now, they bought, you know, they bought Houghton Mifflin Harcourt for $350 million in cash, or as I like to say, lunch money. That means for one of the, you know, one of the big three just bought out the sixth largest publishing house. The big just keep getting bigger. Big deal or big whoop. It's a big whoop because no one's going to do anything about it. It's uh, it's very distressing. There are fewer and fewer companies you can go to if you want to try and sell your book. <laughs> you know, instead of having 10 people or 20 people, you've got four or three who are willing to, to bid on it. Uh, but HMH has a great backlist. Most of its sales in recent years have come not from new releases, but from its catalog of titles. So uh, HarperCollins is really acquiring a great catalog. It's kind of like buying a, a film library. You know, that's just a perennial that's going to generate you income year after year. I would have bought it if I could. Certainly, HarperCollins is going to be able to use that and leverage it with its own catalog and really get full value out of it. I'm sure it was a smart choice in their terms, but in terms of antitrust, it's just one more big problem. Yeah, well, we'll talk about antitrust, I'm sure, during Inside Baseball. But first, Justin Bieber's new album, Justice. Speaking of getting some justice, uh, it's embroiled in a controversy over the cover imagery. But no one's disputing its popularity. Bieber has the number one album in the country, ending the remarkable run of the of country's Morgan Wallen. His double album spent 10 weeks on top, only the third time in Billboard history. An album has spent 10 weeks in a row beating all comers. The last time it happened was Whitney Houston's second album, Whitney. That was back in 1987. Yeah, and nobody banned her songs from the or nobody said we won't play your music. So that makes yeah. Morgan Wallen such you. And I should say it's ten weeks from the day it came out. Uh, okay, to be specific, keep going. Well, another controversy is brewing in music. An anonymous collective of songwriters called the Pact posted on Instagram. So this is a a group called the Pact. Okay, it's not a Pact. They're asking major artists to stop demanding a songwriting credit on songs they didn't actually help write. It's a practice that keeps going on since pop music began with like Elvis and and Colonel Tom Parker being example number one. If you wanted to, you know, if you wanted Elvis, the king of rock and roll, to record your new song, you had to give him a songwriting credit. Can songwriters shame major artists into ending this practice? And is all this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, number one, Justin Bieber, they just announced his song Peaches also debuted at number one. That makes him the first male artist, solo male artist in history to debut at number one with an album and a song at the same time. That's pretty amazing. Uh, Morgan Wallen, amazing that, uh, you know, his album has been so popular despite basically a blanket, uh, uh, you know, disappearance on radio. (laughs) Not, Not a band, but people individually choosing not to play his songs or videos. Yet people are getting music by on demand. And so that didn't really stop his popularity. Um, as far as the songwriting collective, the pact, they're right. People, especially once you're a big success, to demand a songwriting credit when you didn't do it is crazy and awful. I'd be ashamed to do it, but people aren't. Are they going to shame them into stopping? Not if they remain anonymous and not if they don't agree to stop doing it. It's really the, the even, even successful songwriters get pressured into doing it. You know, it's not just new kids who haven't really had a success yet that they can get, you know, they can't stand up to it. It's big names that get artists forcing them to do it. So it's hard to tell 
what artists are writing. If they write their own songs, then you know it. Like Morgan Wallen, he's got songwriting credits on half of the 30 songs on his double album. Justin Bieber has a credit on every single song. And today, given the way songs are often written, where you get in a room and a bunch of people kick ideas around, it's kind of like a writing room for, uh, for a TV show. Keeping that artist out of there, he's always going to be in the room. So deciding who gets what credit, it's really, really hard. But they know when they're taking advantage of people and demanding credit when they didn't do it and they shouldn't do it. But being anonymous ain't going to help if they well, come why do you public. Think this is, why do you think this is suddenly an issue, Michael? He well, said because, knowing the answer. Because <laughs> songwriters are desperate for income because there's no touring, there's no things. And people who get by on songwriting and when artists say, oh, we support you, we love you. It's like, yeah, really? Well, then stop stealing my money. <laughs> yeah, well, because what happened song. is, you know, songwriters would get a lot of money through the sale of music. Okay, so they they profit or they they make money when they're when something they wrote is sold. The mechanical royalties are dead. Correct. So instead, they're getting you. You know, there's no more mechan. Well, there is a mechanical license, but the amount of money they're receiving for that is pretty much over. Uh, and there are lots of uh, songwriters uh, here in Los Angeles and in Nashville who said, you know, the idea that you could, you know, maybe not become a billionaire writing songs, but you could lead a comfortable middle middle income life by writing songs that other people sing. That's over. You know, yeah. that, that, that whole career path is you have to, you can, if you write and then perform those songs like LP, she used to be a songwriter. Now she's a songwriter singer. So yep, those days are over. That's for sure. Yeah, that's uh, that's a little uh, you know inside baseball, one might say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's about the industry, so it's inside baseball. You see what I uh, anyway? Keep, keep going, keep going. Inside baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business, and more importantly, how they affect you. And here's how this week's stories will affect you. Do not leave your house, not because of the pandemic, because you don't have to leave your house to see any movies. You don't have to go to the movie theater anymore because all you have to do is sit around your house, sit on your couch, and Disney and Warner Brothers and Universal, they will bring the movies to you. All right, so now you know exhibitors. Disney, Warner Brothers said flatly, we're not putting anything out in theaters uh, on their own. It's going to be day and date for the rest of the year. We're going to put it on, on HBO Max the day it goes in theaters. Everybody was angry. Disney didn't go that route, but they seem to be doing it film by film. The, everybody seems to be, well, whatever, what can you do? We know we're not back to full grosses yet, so what, are they going to release a $200 million movie and hope to make you know $20 million at the box office on opening weekend? It just doesn't work. But they don't seem to be getting the same grief that Warner Brothers got. Is because they didn't announce it all at once? Is it because people feel like they really are experimenting and trying to see what will work for the future? What's going on? What is the attitude towards Disney? Well, keep in mind, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about something else. Right, we were talking about Raya and the last, you know, the the animated film Raya and the last right. Raya and the Last Dragon, Raya and the yeah. Last. Okay, so the thing is that Disney went out with that film, also putting it on their streaming service for an extra thirty dollars day and date, and Cinemark and Harkins and lots of exhibitors all of a sudden at the last moment said, "We're not going to play the film because Disney why. didn't change their terms." Right. Well, here's the thing: what they realized is. And they realized it a bit late. They didn't change their terms. They said, we're giving you a discount. And all of the exhibitors said, no, you ask us to pay you on a sliding scale based on what the film makes in its national 
box office. So if the film makes, let's say, $100 million, then you'll pay 53%, $200 million, and you'll pay 55%, $300 million. But our town may be shut down or, you know, maybe at 25%. Yeah. Right. And so what they realized is, so they said, okay, and I'm just making numbers up here. These aren't the real numbers. We'll we'll give this film to you 53% no matter what it makes. Well, everybody realized, the exhibitors eventually realized, they did the math and went, well, this film is never going to make the top million yeah yeah so of course you're not giving us a discount you're basically giving us your regular flat rate for that particular gross so no we're not going to you can't that's a that's a have your cake and eat it too thing you're still getting the same price for the film theatrically and oh by the way you get to sell it for your streaming service and collect 6.99 a month from those people so we know why they were maggie mad before has anything changed well here's what's changed they still want better terms, okay? And and there are some exhibitors who feel like, okay, those terms are not great, but they're okay. Uh, and they're a little happier that uh, the Black Widow was pushed back slightly. And here's why. Some of them aren't open yet and won't be open in time to show Black Widow in April. The fact that it was, or even May. So the fact that it was pushed back to July the only negative on that is it comes out a week before Top Gun, so Top Gun is now going to have to move. Well, that's uh, okay. There's, yeah, there's, there's not enough demand yet for all these movies. So, yeah, right. the longer they wait, but they, they want product, but they also want them to wait. So it's kind of confusing. But yeah. Cruella moved to May 28th, but, but it will also be available on Disney Plus for a premium video on demand. You can pay $30 if you're a Disney Plus subscriber and watch it right away. Black Widow moved to July 9th. It too will be available for 30 bucks on demand if you already subscribe to Disney+. Plus. The bad news, Pixar's Luca, their new film, has been yanked from theaters and it is going to go exclusively on Disney+, Plus in June, June 18th. Five other movies had the release dates changed with Marvel's Shang-Chi moving to September, Death on the Nile moving to February 2022, and so on and so forth because you're not going to be able to make any money at the box office right now. So they want to wait until more people are ready to go to the movies. Right now, a couple things. One, Black Widow, it's a Marvel movie. They have all these Marvel products, and, you know, and, and by products, I mean TV shows and movies. And the storylines all intermingle. So they had to get Black Widow out there because it had storylines that involve later pr- properties. So they, like they had to get it. I don't know. I'm not a big Marvel cinema. But no, no, but, but I'm saying those properties are being delayed too. Oh, no, like the Falcon and the Winter well, Soldier. That, no, that the, was always coming out first. So, yeah, you know, I know there's a lot of moving parts, but I don't think it's no, that no, no. complicated. First of all, Black Widow was supposed to be out last May, so it was never going to come out first. Black uh-huh. Widow was supposed to be out already for a year. Wasn't the Falcon well, and the Winter Soldier supposed to be out earlier, too? No, it was supposed to be, all no, right. this, is, this is when it's supposed to be Well, released. then clearly that wasn't an issue. So their, their plot lines didn't overlap, did they? Because Falcon and the Winter Soldier came out first. Whatever it is, it can't be that complicated, you know. The, the Verge had a very good article on, on, you know, Marvel couldn't wait any longer to kick off its next phase of movies and shows. That basically uh-huh. these, these, these things are that come in phases. I'll, I'll place a link to it in our show notes. Uh, okay. It's worth a read. Um, so Cruella, everybody thought was going to go straight to uh, the streaming platform, Disney+. Plus. Why is the Pixar film going straight and only to... Disney Plus, because maybe because maybe because Soul did great for them in December. It attracted a lot of subscribers, and they know 
that parents need something for their kids. And so they will resubscribe or subscribe for the first time. And that's what they're interested in. That's a lot of damn money to make them subscribe. $200 million a shot for a two hour movie when you're giving up $800 million at the box office if you waited a year. Because Luca isn't tied to the Marvel Universe. So, I mean, there's got to be cheaper ways to keep people coming back to your streaming service than a $200 million movie. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. That, what I still don't get the math. I'd rather make a TV show with 10 episodes for that money. You know, I'd rather have WandaVision and some kid friendly show that will give me 10 or 20 episodes and can have multiple seasons afterwards than, sp- than have a hundred minute movie that I drop for $200 million on my streaming service. But uh, what do I know? Well, it beats what Warner Brothers did, which is just release everything day and date. And they said they were going to be doing this, uh, you know, H- everything goes to HBO Max on the same day that it hits theaters. But really, they were leading with HBO Max. And, and it's going to be that way the entire 2021. So here comes Cineworld or Regal here in the United States. Uh, they basically said, look, you're not going to change. First of all, we're closed. OK, and we're not going to play your movies day and date. Okay, so that's not going to happen. And if we do, the terms have had better be decent because we're we're not playing them for the old terms. Uh, And by the way, we want to know what are you going to do in 2022. So they basically pulled a little bit of leverage, uh, had a little bit of leverage, and said, "Is this really a pandemic move, or are you going to go back to a theatrical exclusive window?" in 2022. And Warner Brothers, realizing they couldn't go back on what they said earlier, they they had to play out 2021 the way they had promised publicly. Well, p- promised? People would be thrilled if they said you could put them in theaters. You know, they have no problem saying, never mind, we're going to release it theatrically first. Uh, you know what? I, that's that's yeah. not true. I mean, they're well, already exhibitors, struggling. Exhibitors wouldn't be angry. They'd be no, thrilled. The, the subscribers to HBO Max would, would they hate barely, it. They, they don't even know, you know. Anyway, yeah, they're, they didn't buy HBO Max because they think 11 months from now they're going to get to watch a movie exclusive on HBO Max the same day it opens in theaters. They don't know or care about that stuff. That's an industry thing. I don't think there's a soul on the planet be like, oh, my God. Oh my God, this movie opened in theaters for 45 days before I could watch an HBO Max. That's outrageous. I'm I'm canceling my subscription. It wouldn't happen. Yeah, well, people would be very upset uh, when, I mean, basically they they spent six months advertising this. So if all of a sudden that wasn't the case, they weren't going to go back on it. They were going to play out 2021 the way they said they would. Uh, And because there's no, you know, the pandemic isn't getting it. Basically, they Regals. signed a deal for God's sakes. <laughs> yeah, they signed a deal, 45 day theatrical exclusive window, which of course isn't great for exhibitors, but they're actually not too upset by that. They're like, okay, we could actually, kind of it live is with great that. for exhibitors. It's great for exhibitors. It's what they should have agreed to two years ago. Most, the vast majority of movies are played out in 45 days. And if it's not, and it's still making substantial money, the studio probably will hold off before putting it on, you know, video on demand or on their streaming service. Correct. A 45 deal is great. Uh, So what happened is in the US, Regal gets a 45 day theatrical exclusive. In the UK, they are giving uh, Cineworld, that's their name in the UK, a 31 day window before it goes to premium video on demand or HBO Max or whatever it may be, unless the movie reaches a certain box office threshold. So big movies get a 45 window, 45 day window there as well. Here's the thing. If you're maybe not Cineworld or AMC or Regal, 
let's say you're Harkins or Marcus Theaters or B&B Theaters. You're going to get the same deal they did. They're not, they can't right. release but it. They can't the push it to video on demand ahead here's of that 45-day window. What if I were to cut a deal with Warner Brothers that Regal had to uh, abide by? What My problem with all of this is that you have these giants out there that have been allowed to scoop up movie theaters and movie theater chains. As well, on the flip side of that, you have Disney and Fox being allowed to combine. Okay, well, we're, we're all antitrust here. We all think things are too big. That's got nothing to do with what the theatrical window should be. However, if you basically said, oh, Harkins and Marcus are going to talk to one another and they're going to say that, you know, when you book a film with Harkins and Marcus, they have to be the same terms, that would be antitrust. However, they're not going to get better terms than what, than what Regal Cinema got and AMC get anyway. And there's no way to make them stricter. They're not going to get a worse deal because Warner Brothers can't take a movie to video on demand just for Harkins. You know, they're not going to, they can't. They no, what can't. I'm saying is when what Harkins is going to do uh, and whoever, Marcus. Tiny, th- mm-hmm. Tiny theaters are never going to get a better deal than Regal or AMC. And there's no way that they can get a worse deal than Regal or AMC because, I mean, in terms of percentage maybe, but not in terms of when movies go theatrical window because it has to be nationally. Yes, however, for decades, and let's just even take the last five years, decisions were made based on an industry practice. Now the industry practice is changing, and you aren't even at the decision-making table. You're being Why told. would you be? You're a 200-screen company. You're a five-screen company. Why would you be at the table? You want to you drive-in in Oklahoma, and you think you're going to be at the table? It's not going to happen. Yeah, well, first of when, all, when have you like, ever When have you ever been at the table? Never. Marcus Theaters? They're the fifth well, largest uh, chain in the nation. Uh-huh. How many screens? Like eight or nine hundred screens. God bless them. They can't get any voice. They can't get any voice with the with the studio. Well, I think their voice will be. I think what will happen is their voice will come in terms. And if you listen to what Mookie Grinding told Deadline, he basically said, "Look, we're showing Universal films. However, that doesn't mean we've reached a deal with them because we originally said we weren't going to show Universal films because of the seventeen day window thing. However, we're going to have to, and this is." This is where you have to parse his words. We're going to have to come to some financial understanding, meaning they want better terms. Yes, right. Now, of course, the terms the terms that that Regal gets are not going to be the terms Marcus gets. Of course, what I'm saying is, if I'm Marcus Theaters, I have 17 days to play a movie. Now, now the reason I only have 17 days to play a movie is because AMC, a company that has no bearing on me whatsoever negotiated that deal. And what hasn't that always been true? To some extent, it, yes, yes, but not right. to this level. Not to this level. This none of this has anything to do with the theatrical window and what it should be. You're arguing that smaller exhibitors don't have much power. Welcome to the world. Well, I wouldn't and call big, Marcus and big and big exhibit. Well, yes you are. You keep saying they don't have power and that they're being bigfooted by AMC and Regal and I agree that they don't have the power of AMC and Regal and they can't stand up to studios especially when studios are allowed to buy out their competitors and get bigger than ever. So I agree with you. I'm all for breaking up the bigger companies and making them smaller. Disney should not have been able to buy Fox. We got one less player, which means one less person to pit against one another and thus allow the exhibitors to have a little more wiggle room and get better terms. I agree with you. Absolutely. Yet again, the deal with Regal and with Regal Cinemas and Warner Brothers gets it completely backwards. 
like everybody else, they think, well, it's a small movie. We'll give it a 30-day window. But if it's a big blockbuster, we'll give it a 45-day window. Actually, big blockbusters play out quicker. So the movies that need more time to play are these smaller films. You should have a 45-day window for a smaller movie unless it drops off the charts and completely isn't playing anymore, at which point everyone should agree, yes, it's fine. If it's out of theaters in three weeks, of course you can take it straight to streaming. Why the hell not? Let's everybody agree that if you don't want to play the movie anymore, Exhibitor, it gets to go to streaming. But if you're happy to keep playing a movie, you should have a 45-day window, frankly, for all films. By the way, you know, what part of the terms for these and talking about windows is even though Disney is playing these things day and date on their on their streaming service, Disney will tell you you can't take that movie off. No, 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 you got to play it for for 3 weeks. Right. You, you know, it's and so it's well, well there's not there's, there's no movies to show anyway, so nobody cares. Right. But what they know is what's coming. What There's when, very few Disney films that will play out in one weekend. So three weekends is not exactly a big ask in a normal times, you know. Yeah, well, well these the are ra- uh, awfully you know. right, but th- there's nothing else to put in their place right now. So it's not a big ask now. And in general, three weekends is meaningless. There's virtually no movie you that is so awful you want to yank it after three weekends. You know, I mean, yank it before three weekends, two weekends, and you want to pull it off the screen. It doesn't happen really. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people fit, think two weeks and it depends on the, the cinema. Like if you have a four screen complex, then yeah, you need, you need to shift things around because everybody in the town has seen the the movies that they're going to see. So you need to shift things like star Wars in the, the one town that had like two screens. They were like, look, every, there's 2000 people here. They've seen star Wars. They're not going to come back and see star Wars four weeks later. Yes, they are. <laughs> Yes, they are. (laughs) They're not going to come see that other movie because they want to see Star Wars again. So you wanted me to keep your other movie on screen, but I got to keep the one screen for Star Wars because it's going to play for six months or a year. Yeah. Well, you talking uh, about Star Wars, Star Wars, or do you mean some recent iteration? Some recent iteration. Right. Oh, I thought you meant Star Wars, the classic 1977 original. No. All right. That was horrible. This has been the worst show ever. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening. (laughs) Thank you for listening. We've had technical snafus. Sperling's tired. And you know what? People died. French director Bertrand Tavernier died at the age of 79. He was the leader of the new wave that came after the new wave in France. He won the César five times, twice for directing, three times for Dwighting. He won Germany's Golden Bear. He was nominated. His movies were nominated for Oscars multiple times. A Sunday in the Country, Life and Nothing But, hit the film I like by him best, Round Midnight. And he's two great great books. Two great great books about cinema, 50 Years of American Cinema and American Friends. To my knowledge, they're not in print and they're not even translated into English. The latter book is called Amis American. Uh, I wish they were in English. If they are, send us a copy. (laughs) Did you like Bertrand Tavernier? Obviously, you like Round Midnight. Oh, yeah. Uh Yeah. You know, he's a critic that wound up becoming a filmmaker. So how could you... Like Truffaut and so many others. Like Truffaut and what's his name? Terrence Malick. A lot of great critics. And and Rod Lurie is also a filmmaker. I wouldn't put him in the... I would not link him. I'm putting him in the category of somebody who was a journalist and critic and is now So is Roger Ebert, but his movies sucked. (laughs) (laughs) Did you like Jessica Walter? She died at the age of 80. You know, I, I wasn't necessarily somebody who knew her work 
well, but I knew that, you know, I knew she's, oh yeah, that girl, that, that woman. Well, yeah. That woman, please. Yes. Great, yeah. great career. She began in theater and on Broadway, a breakout performance as sort of a stalker in Clint Eastwood's directorial debut, Play Misty for Me. She got Emmy nominations for performances on Trapper John, Streets of San Francisco. She won the Emmy for the TV show Amy Prentice, a spinoff of Ironside on which she starred with Helen Hunt as her preteen daughter. She was married to actor Ron Lehman, a great stage actor himself. Long, distinguished career, dramas, these shows, Broadway. And then suddenly, late in her life, she became a comic star. She starred on Arrested Development, and she did great voice work on the animated series Archer. So a great second act for her, where she really blossomed. Archer, especially, is really going to be hurting without the voice of uh jessica walter that really really hurts i don't know what they're gonna do that show's gonna have a big hole in the heart of it because she was so good archer (laughs) she was just a great you know mom running a spy agency really really fun performance so that was really fun to see someone so known for drama turn around late in life and become so well known for her comic timing right i I know her most for for uh obviously arrested development of course of course yeah yeah, well, and then, uh, well, I guess Malcolm Cecil, and if that name doesn't sound familiar, it's because he's he's the, uh, I don't want to say inventor, but he invented a lot of, uh, I guess, technology for the synthesizer. Well, he he helped uh, he helped create a particular synthesizer. If you don't know his name, check your Stevie Wonder albums, because those string of albums in the 70s that made Stevie Wonder's legend forever, he's on them. He partnered with Bob Margaleff on creating innovative synthesizers after they met in like the 60s or whatever, and they developed Tonto, a massive machine that combined all sorts of tech wizardry and then new gigaws and stuff that they came up with, and it was called the Original New Timbrel Orchestra, or Tonto. Huge thing, like six feet tall, massive, looks like a sci-fi movie come to life, and that machine was unique and it caught the eye of Stevie Wonder and the three of them collaborated on most of his great albums of the 70s as co-producers. Their relationship fell apart over royalties, no agreement was signed at the beginning, bad mistake guys, and while Wonder immediately self-produced another masterpiece after they broke up, his run of genius was basically over. So, you know, they were they were there at his peak period. It's not that they helped make him happen, but certainly they were there at his greatest apex of his career. Tonto was eventually, many, many years later, outpaced by newer tech, but not before being used by a ton of acts. Uh, Joan Baez, Quincy Jones, Gil Scott Heron, Harry Nielsen, James Taylor, on and on and on. Devo, Mark Mothersbaugh from Devo, loved it. He even housed the machine in his own studio for a time and used it on his soundtrack for the classic kids cartoon, Rugrats. So if you heard Rugrats, you have heard Tonto in action. And if you see this machine, it's it's pretty remarkable. It is I mean, remarkable. It, it fills a whole like studio. There's, we've got a link to another uh, musician who died this week, drummer Don Heffington of Lone Justice, one of my favorite acts, especially because of Maria McKee. He was a major session drummer who played with a ton of acts over the decades all over Americana and Roots music. Emmylou Harris, Bob Dylan, Day Alvin, so many others. Maria McKee said he was the only member of Lone Justice I never fought with. And that's saying something. <laughs> so a very cool guy. Check out the, the, the love for him that so many acts that you probably like. Uh, It's well worth checking out.
Well, and an, an actor that probably everybody recognizes, George Seagal. He died at the age of 87. Oh, I would uh, have said Seagal. I've never heard his name pronounced, I don't think. Yeah, you know what? It is it's uh, it is probably Seagal. I, I, I mean, I don't to, know. I don't know. Well, a lot of people probably know him from D- Just Shoot Me, the David Spade uh, sitcom, and I'm sure a lot of people would say, that's not a David Spade sitcom. It's a, you know. <laughs> no, it most certainly is a David Spade. That's why I never watched it. So oh, okay. I had no idea George Seagal was on it because- David Spade, I'm not in. <laughs> if he's there, I am not watching it. I've never watched anything by him. Deeply unfunny man. God bless him. <laughs> and But he's also on the Goldbergs right up until he died. I had no idea he was on that show. No, not a clue. What I know him from is Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, the directorial debut of Mike Nichols, a great, great movie of a great, great play. He is the most uninteresting role. I mean, it's the thankless role. There's only four roles. His role is the least interesting, but he was great in it. And it's a great movie, but he did the hot rock fun with Dick and Jane King rat, a touch of glass, uh, California split for Robert Altman to die for and flirting with disaster later in life. Uh, you know, he had a good run with big directors, never made that many good movies, (laughs) but he played the uke and the banjo, even recording an album of banjo music. Take that Steve Martin. He was one of the first actors to become a leading man without changing their Jewish last name. I love this. All his grandparents were Russian Jews on his mother and his father's side. On his mother's side, they came to America and they changed their name. Uh, Slobodkin, they said, no, we can't be Slobodkin. We must become Americans. And they changed their name from Slobodkin to Bodkin. They said, look, now we are Americans. Bodkin, Bodkin, that is not an American name. <laughs> like people, <laughs> Jones, Smith, if you want to fit in, Bodkin, that's, you're not getting there yet. Slobodkin, no, 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 Bodkin, now we are Americans. <laughs> Just like, needed to work harder on that, people. But, well, uh, they, you know, it was lunchtime. They wanted to go to lunch. <laughs> that's right. He was a very good guest on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Appeared a ton of times, even guest hosted, always playing the banjo. He pulled out of the Blake Edwards film 10. Oops. The role yeah. went to Dudley Moore. I know him. I looked through his list of movies. I'm like, wow, he didn't make a lot of good movies. Seems no. like a nice guy. Very affable. Not a lot of good movies. But thanks to HBO, I will remember him forever for The Duchess and the Dirtwater Fox, co-starring Goldie Hawn. Did you ever see it? I have never seen it and probably no, won't. Nor should you, but it played 10,000. You know how it would be. It would play 8 a.m., 1 p.m., 5 p.m., and midnight every day for a month or three months. So yeah. you saw it again and again. This movie, not good, but there's one funny line. They're, they're, it's the Old West. They're running away from something bad, guys, and he's, he's just a hapless guy. He's a you know like a maverick guy. He doesn't want to fight. He just wants to you know gamble and have fun, and he kills a bad guy, and they're galloping away on a horse, and Goldie Hawn said, oh, my God. He's like, hey, you killed that man? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, well, how many men have you killed? He says, including that one? She says, yeah. He goes, one. <laughs> <laughs> and later in the movie, they rob, how many banks have you robbed, including that one? One. <laughs> it was a good line. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, Johnny Dangerously. Uh, yes. When, when the Joe Piscopo would always go, my mother did that to me once. 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 <laughs> yeah. My mother hung me from a hook Once. Once. Oh, brother. I use that line all the time and nobody gets it. Nobody gets the reference. Uh, but it's all in the any timing. Case. Well, now, have, have you read any uh, books uh, by Beverly Cleary? I am sure I have, though I need to read them again or some of them because it's been a while. But before Judy Bloom, 
there was Beverly Cleary. She died at the age of 104. Unlike Judy Bloom, she wasn't tackling controversial issues, but starting in the early 50s, she did create characters kids could relate to. They weren't rich little British orphans who would become princes. They weren't fantasy tales. They were just kids dealing with everyday life. Kids might dream of being Nancy Drew or Hardy Boy or Tom Swift, but they were Ramona the Pest or Henry or Beezus or dozens of other kids that she created. Her sales approached 100 million copies of her 40-plus books, including Ramona the Pest, The Mouse and the Motorcycle, and her young love series like Sisters of the Bride, 15, and so on. Her birthday, April 12th, is Dear Day, or D-E-A-R Day, Drop Everything and Read. Something very sweet I saw. Judy Bloom posted about her and said it was a big regret of her life that she never actually met Beverly Cleary. They almost did a couple times and once she got a pile of mail intended for beverly cleary and beverly cleary got a pile of mail intended for judy bloom that's how sort of you know philosophically linked those two artists were so uh a sad bat you know 104 god bless her right you know what it was a bad week for authors because uh larry mcmurtry who actually is also an oscar winner because he he did write the screenplay for brokeback mountain uh he died at the age of 84 uh you might know him for lonesome dove in fact well, I should hope you would. Uh, that's a very fun book. I just wrote a memorial piece for him at Book and Film Globe. I got a link in our show notes. It's called Larry McMurtry Was One Lucky Bastard. <laughs> this yeah, guy he had, sure was. This guy had such good luck in Hollywood. You know, he wrote a debut novel, got some nice reviews. It was turned into HUD, starring Paul Newman. They, you know, His third novel was The Last Picture Show. That was turned into a great film. Uh, four of his first five film and TV projects were HUD, the Last Picture Show, A Piece of Junk by Sidney Lumet, because nobody's perfect. Then Terms of Endearment in 1983. I, and th I'm not even done yet. There's a TV movie that he wrote the story for called The Murder of Mary Fagan. Stars Jack Lemmon. You probably don't remember it. It was a two-parter. Huge ratings and critical success. And then the miniseries Lonesome Dove. You know, And in fact, Lonesome Dove happened because he and Bogdanovich wrote a film script, and they wanted to get... Henry Fonda, Jimmy Stewart, and John Wayne for the leads. Oh, my God, what a great movie that would have been. But they wouldn't do it. The studio was down, but the actors were not into it. And after 12 years of development hell, Larry McMurtry brought back the rights and then just wrote the novel Lonesome Dove, which became his magnum opus, winning him the Pulitzer Prize, selling a billion copies, and launching the miniseries, which is one of the biggest miniseries hits of all time. Spun off four more miniseries, two attempts to turn it into a TV show, it was a franchise to end all franchises. So lucky, lucky guy. Well, and you're lucky that this show is over. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it for episode 535. Uh, in fact, you can listen to episode 536 when it's recorded. If you subscribe to us on iTunes, Google, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, anywhere they give podcasts away for free, Spotify, you can subscribe to us, rate, review us in any one of those podcast aggregators. It helps us out when you do. You can find that information, those ways to subscribe to us, as well as links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, as well as ways to contact us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter where our handle is at Showbiz Sandbox. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. Now, all of this information is on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. 
they can be found on their own website, who is MGMT.com. Michael Giltz has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week you can find me at bookedup.com. That's the name of the bookstore that he had in Archer City, his hometown, the basis for The Last Picture Show's town. Uh, he pretty oh, much okay. took over the town. It was like practically the largest used bookstore in the world. He took over six buildings and filled them with 400,000 copies of books. He loved collecting books. He couldn't stop. They were all his. No, you know, no, 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 no. <laughs> hey, there you go. Buffalo Girls, a room of <laughs> Buffalo Girl copies. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, authors hate to see their books in the remainder pile. That's true. Yeah, exactly. Well, now, if you can't find any of Michael's uh, coverage of the entertainment industry there, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com, where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until two weeks from now, play nice. Play nice.